uh, we're going to look at a passage here in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. We're returning to the Olivet Discourse. And as we look at this passage, just a couple of things here. I want you to note there is reference to ten virgins here. And these ten virgins are not brides, they're bridesmaids. So that might help you understand the passage. They're not brides, they're bridesmaids who are going out with the wedding procession. There are some questions we might ask as to the meaning of the passage and elements of the passage. We don't want to give detail to all the different meaning. It will actually take away from us understanding the passage as a whole. But the scripture reading that we had today from Isaiah, Isaiah 61 and 62, might give us a little bit of a hint. In Isaiah 62.1, we read this, For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, as a light, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burns. And we're going to read about a burning lamp, and we might see and understand that this is a testament to that individual's or to their salvation. And then also, it's within this context of a marriage, which is the vision that's given to us in Isaiah 62 as well. And so we read in the Old King James, our scripture reading this morning, and we read that the one who was desolate shall now be called Hepzibah. That word Hepzibah means my delight is in her, and their land will be called Beulah, and Beulah means married, wed. And so it's just a picture of this consummation of the people of God being brought out from their sin and being brought into a deep, lasting, abiding, glorious relationship with God and the salvation that he's provided for them becoming an intense light that goes out and shines before them. Now, take your Bibles again to Matthew 25 and let me read to you verses 1 through 13. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, Jesus concludes, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. We're back in the Olivet Discourse. And the Olivet Discourse is this teaching that the Lord Jesus gave where he was explaining to his disciples the events and the elements that would take place in the last days before he returned. And in this parable, he places his focus upon the life that his followers are to live in the interim before his return, what it is that he is wanting to find in them as he returns. And this is a very personal account. It actually mirrors other parables that we may have read. You've read of the parable of the soils, where the sower went out and he sowed into different ground, and he found some ground that was rocky, and the seed sprouted up, but because it was shallow and rocky, when the sun came upon it, it dried away and it died, and the seed fell in thorny ground, and it grew up for a moment, but then the cares of the world came around, and that seed died away, and some of it fell on good soil, it says, and produced fruit. 
there's a picture of the fact that the gospel doesn't always produce the same results in the lives of various individuals. The Lord Jesus even went further on in the next parable he told. He told the parable of a man who went out and sowed in his field wheat, and then his enemy came and in the middle of the same field sowed tares, and there were tares and wheat growing up together. And the servants of the man said, Lord, should we not just pull up the tares? And he said, no, don't. You might pull up some of the wheat with it. Wait. Basically, wait until the judgment comes. And God will filter out the wheat from the tares. And yet the Lord Jesus was implying that there was going to be this mixed nature in his kingdom of those who were truly of his and bearing fruit and those who were not. And, but you read those passages, well, I don't know how much you can identify with a stalk of wheat or tares, but this passage, to some extent, we're meant to identify with it. We're meant to identify it in a very personal way, and it's along the same lines. It's the story or the account of individuals who are participating in the life of the fellowship. And they are engaged in the activities of the fellowship, and yet not all of them actually have been truly and wonderfully saved. The parable puts a focus on what is required or what God looks for in the heart of individuals that makes the difference between those who are wise and those who are foolish, those who are ready to meet the king when he returns, and those who are not ready to meet the king when he returns. There are parts of this passage that will confuse us if we try to make these particular elements too meaningful or we try to apply too much meaning to the various items. Although we see that the lamps can be an expression of salvation, we don't know for sure. And although I have an idea that the oil may be the Holy Spirit, we do not know for sure. And we don't necessarily know what the significance is that the virgins are sleeping at the moment in which the groom is announced to be coming. But I think more than anything else, the particulars of these stories are likely intended to place within the imaginations of those who are listening a true experience of the account. In other words, they provide details that are true for actual marriages and weddings at that time. These are the types of things that took place. In the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, a bride would have her bridesmaids. And when the time was approaching for her wedding, these young women in the community would come in celebration to join her as she anticipated and prepared for her wedding. There was no specific date for the wedding that was set. The groom was preparing a place for her, and he was working to make the place ready for her in his father's house. And when that place was prepared, and when that house was built, and when that room, that extra room was built, at the time that all was finished and all was prepared, at that time, he would send one of his party forward to go to the bride's house, and the person would go forward through the community yelling out, the bridegroom comes, the bridegroom comes, to announce his coming. And at that point in time, the members of the bride's party and the groom's party would gather together and they would make their way together from the bride's house to the groom's house that he had prepared for his bride. And there they would gather together for some time to celebrate. They didn't go on a honeymoon. They brought their friends around their house and they gathered around their house and maybe for a week. If it was a royal wedding, it might be for a month. They would celebrate together this great wedding feast. If they came at night, by the way, they would all gather around them with torches and light, and they'd lead them in a lighted processional back to their house. And that was a part of the celebration. That was a part of the experience. And there they would go and celebrate the wedding feast. They would celebrate the marriage of this happy couple. And God uses the idea of a wedding or of wedding feast or of brides or of bridemaids or bridegrooms and marriage in Scripture to illustrate something of the celebration and the joy, and the intimacy, and the relationship that he's wanting to bring us into for all eternity. In one parable, the Lord Jesus speaks of the church as represented by the wedding guests that are all invited to a great wedding feast. 
on another occasion, the scriptures refer to us, the church, as the bride that's being received by Jesus Christ and brought into the feast. And, and this story that we're reading, it's the bridesmaids that we represent, eager to welcome the bridegroom and to go with him in his great celebration and with him in his great joy and to be with him in that great feast. But here's what you're to focus upon in this story. The first thing is this. The groom is the Lord Jesus. The groom is the Lord Jesus. And he is being waited for. And he is worth waiting for. And he is bringing those waiting for him into an everlasting place of celebration and blessing. His coming seems to be delayed. And life goes on during the time period of that delay. But when he comes, he's going to come suddenly and surprisingly. And here's something else you should note from our story. We're to be found waiting for him. We're to be found waiting and ready for his coming. Now, in this lesson of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus intends to explain to his true disciples or to give an explanation of or to give a declaration of what will be found in the heart attitude of his true disciples as they're waiting for him. What is it that the person who has truly found him and truly been restored into relationship with him, what will be discovered in their life at the time that Christ returns? And what will be discovered in those who have not truly discovered him and truly known him? What will be discovered in their lives? So in the story, you have the bridegroom who's coming, but you also have him coming to ten bridesmaids, five that are wise, five that are not wise. Five that have enough oil to burn in their lamps to meet the bridegroom when he comes, delayed or not, and to go with him to the wedding feast, to go with him into eternal life, and five others who do not have enough oil to burn. They are not ready to wait and be ready when he comes. They're not prepared at the time, at any time, should he come to go with him into eternal life. Note there seems to be, actually when you look at this story, no difference between the wise and the unwise on the surface of things. All of them have their lamps. All of them have oil that's burning with them. All of them are gathered in the same place to wait. All of them are found sleeping together as they wait. That is, they're just living life together. But when the announcement comes, the foolish ones do not have what is sufficient to go with the wedding party to the feast. They're out of oil. and They want to borrow what is needed from the wise, and the wise can't give it to them. They don't have oil for them to borrow. Please note the outcome of this. The wise are brought into the feast, and the unwise are left outside a shut door. Those left outside will claim relationship to the groom. Lord, Lord, open to us, they say. And the groom will say, I don't know you. And the door to the feast remains forever shut to them. That's the story. That's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Let's draw some lessons from this parable. And here's the first lesson that we should understand. The visible church of professing Christians is a mixed crowd. There is the invisible church that makes up those who have been redeemed in heaven and redeemed on earth. This invisible church that is the bride of Jesus Christ or those who are going to enjoy him forever and ever. But the visible church, the local church, the church as it is presented on earth today, throughout the world and in our community and in this place is a mixed crowd containing those who truly know Christ and those who do not. Those who are ready to receive him when he comes and those who will find out that they have no light in themselves with which to meet him when he returns. It's kind of sobering. It means that for all the work of the church, 
for all of its pastors and all of its preachers and all of its preaching and all of its teaching and all of its organization and all of its missions work and all of its outreach, all of its Bible studies and Sunday schools and prayer groups and programs of discipleship and ministry, all of its meals together and celebrations of the Lord's table together and gatherings by the river for baptism together, for all of that, for all of that, many will still be found in the church, the local church, not sufficiently ready for the Lord's return and left outside of his eternal kingdom at the last. I have to admit that it's surprising to me at times to discover how little individuals have heard or understood the primary message of the gospel, though they've been exposed to the word of God being taught and communicated through preaching and study and hymnody for long periods of time. To discover in the press of life or at the end of life that they didn't know or live yielded to the good news that Jesus had fully covered the cost of their sin and that nothing else could repay it or make it up. That there was no work that they'd missed out or no work they needed to do if they had totally and only trusted them, to find that they had rested their hope in a raised hand or a mental agreement with a doctrinal proposition, but that they had no believing connection of heart to Christ himself. They had a propositional salvation instead of a personal savior, to find that they had no great love for Christ than what made them feel good in a moment or sentimentally settled at any moment in time when they needed it. And yet there was no demonstration and is no demonstration in their life of a vital, personal, ongoing connection to him. No connection to his ongoing forgiveness and cleansing. No connection to his ongoing speech and command. No connection to his life-giving spirit. No release of the self in a hold of faith upon him. No true comfort in his presence and so they don't seek it out. No submission to his word. Rather, to find that at the end there's more enjoyment in the company of others and a more commitment to follow the determinations of their own opinions and to seek out his will. More gladness to discuss their own ideas than to discuss together and bask in his word. All of this is stunning and shocking. But here Jesus tells us how it will be. Many will be unprepared for him in the end. Many in the church. Many will not have the burning light of bright fellowship with him. And as you read this and you consider it, you realize that you have yet to understand the depth of the spiritual blindness that is possible in places where God sends out the greatest light. It's possible in life to be in the midst of the church, to be surrounded by wise virgins and be a foolish one. And the Lord Jesus is revealing that. And he didn't say nine wise virgins, one foolish one. He gave the understanding that this would be a predominant and clear problem and a concern. Here's another one. There's another thing we can learn from this passage. If you are not prepared to meet the Lord Jesus when he returns, it's because you're not preparing for him. If you're not prepared to meet the Lord Jesus when he returns, it means that you're not preparing for him. It means your heart and your mind are not presently set upon him. And if your life is not set upon him now, you won't cling to him and set yourself upon him when he comes. It appears as though both the wise and the unwise virgins look much the same. At the same time, although they look much the same, there was something different at the heart of these two groups. The wise group was 
together looking for the coming of a person. I think this is the difference. They were looking for the coming of a person. The unwise were looking for and enjoying the present experience, and they were looking for the conclusion of a party. (laughs) They were looking for the social conventions that were involved. They were looking for the experience and the social excitements or benefits that were involved in it. They were more engaged in the joy of the event, of the wedding, without any real interest in the bridegroom himself. Give an example of this. You have a young girl who's somehow been taught to fixate on the romantic notions of marriage. Maybe she figured it out with her Ken and her Barbie. Who knows? You know, and she's grown in this idea and she's watched some different romantic cartoons and it's made her mind think about these things. And she began to read romance novels. And then she used her allowance to buy bridal magazines and scour through them. And she's planning out and has been planning out for a long time some spectacular wedding. Maybe. Maybe she's dreaming in some way to get away from the home she's in to another home, but she's got her plans laid out and she has her fancies laid out and all she needs is an acceptable young man to come along and play the role as a groom. And he comes along and unwittingly he's caught up in her fancies. He doesn't understand all that's been bundled up in her own expectations. But in a sense, he is secondary. He certainly needed to play out this thing and to realize these dreams she has, but to a large extent, he's simply a means to an end. He's the means to an end of a, a bright and wonderful wedding celebration. He might be the means to an end to a picket fence life or to a domestic dream that she's gathered in around herself, any number of things. But you're not sure as you look on at these things if she's so much in love with the man before her as she is in the idea she has for herself with the man. She hasn't given herself to him so much as she's acquired him as a means of realizing her own significance or playing out her own sentimental dreams. We have to ask ourselves if Christ is a means to an end for us or if he's the end. We have to ask ourselves if he has a utility to service our emotional needs and our desires or our comforts or a sense of settledness in life or whether he is the source of all being to us and he's the Lord of all life to us and he's everything to us. Paris Reed has, has a wonderful sermon called Ten Shekels in a Shirt. I've mentioned it before. Google it sometime and listen to it. It'll change your life. He says the essence of humanism says the chief end of all being is the happiness of man. The essence of Christianity, two heart Christianity, is the chief end of all being is the glory of God. And yet very often in the church, we teach a Christianity which is basically Christ did everything for your happiness, for your satisfaction, for your fulfillment, in order to please and satisfy you. And it's just humanism in Christian dress. It looks similar. You've got the lamp and you hang in the same places, but you don't have the same oil burning within it, and not an oil that lasts. This life in the church that we live together is all about, or supposed to be all about, the Lord Jesus. The reason we're supposed to meet together is because the Bible says where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in our midst. And so we meet together so that together we may enjoy him and may experience him. The Lord Jesus working in your life reveals himself in a different way than he does in my life. He answers your prayers in a different way and prompts you in different ways and reveals himself uh, from a unique perspective. And I want to be with you so I can learn more about him and his ways. The Lord Jesus grants to his followers various gifts in the church. And so some of you have 
residing within you, abilities energized by the power of the Holy Spirit, which reveal the full panoply of all the gifts that the Lord Jesus had when he walked upon the earth. I don't have that full panoply. I might have some, in some measure, empowered by the Spirit, but only some. The church we gather together in order that we might experience a greater and greater complement together of the expression of Christ's life in us and Christ's life upon us, and it's, it's him that we seek, at least... That's the reason we're to be together. We, we celebrate the Lord's table together because every part of it is to remind us of Him and what He has done for us. He's given His life for our sins and He's provided for us the basis for which we can be washed in His blood and cleansed of all of our sins. He's given His life to us in order that we might live in Him and live by Him. He's the wine that we drink and the bread to sustain our lives. He's necessary for everything that's good and right and spiritually deep within us. He's life in us. Supposed to have this meal together so that together we can celebrate what he is to us. And in the celebration, we encourage one another in himself. It's all about the Lord Jesus, or again, it's supposed to be. But you know, it can be just about us. It can be just about me realizing a point of significance, having a place of community, feeling a place of belonging, having people to hold me accountable so that I can learn to do the right things and develop a good ethical life. It can be about just developing a support system for myself to meet the challenges of life and to find encouragement and comfort. And it, wonderful that the church offers all those things. But it ultimately could be nothing more than that. Find people that I identify with and I have things in common with or we share the same political opinions with or we share the same ideas about certain things and we gather together after the service to find out and test one another to see if we've developed the same understanding of what our social condition is or whatever it is. And that's not what the church is about. It's not why Christ has come among us, to live among us. It's not why he's the head and we're to be his body. To share in common his life. It's not to sharpen the swords of our own ideas and understanding and evaluations. It's for us to come under his word and let him come and work upon us and work in us and then together give us discernment on how we might live as peacemakers, as presenters of the mercy and goodness and justice of Jesus Christ and his gospel to the ends of the earth. It's supposed to be all about him. But for many, that's not the case. That's not why they come and gather together. That's not why they meet. They meet because they gain a sense of importance here, or they gain a soothing of the jangling of nerves, or this is a small pond in which they can be a big fish, or whatever it is. You have to ask yourself. We have to ask ourselves as a church, and we have to answer this. Is this all about him? And should it not be all about him? And can we truly be ready to meet him if it isn't all about him? This is what we're learning in this passage. When I was engaged to my wife, or before I got engaged to her, I was concerned. I understood that God had called me into ministry. I felt heavily the call of God upon my life. I had a rather dramatic story to tell of how God would called me and was preparing me. She didn't. You know, it was a little concern. I thought maybe she should have a call to ministry as well, and maybe this was not God's will, and I began to express a bit of my concerns, and her answer to me was, Joel, I believe that God has called me to be your wife. I'm called to you. If God wants you to be a janitor, then I'm called to be a janitor's wife. And if God is calling you to be a pastor, then God is calling me to be a pastor's wife. And that was good enough for me. It was, like, it was even better. <laughs> it was quite wonderful, and it was 
incredibly humbling. She wasn't fulfilling some domestic dream for her life. She wasn't pursuing her self-actualization through me. She was called to me. A wonderful way, this is how it is for the bride of Christ. We're not coming to Him in order to fulfill some dream that we have for ourselves. We're coming to Him for Him. We come to attach to Him and be with Him, and then He gives us our assignments as we see how He lives and how He loves and how He works, and we go out to be helpmates in the way that He lives and He works and He loves within the world around us. It's a good and powerful lesson. When Jesus comes, it will be revealed that many in the church were there for him and were waiting together for him. And they had their eyes upon him and they'd come just to be with him. But it will also reveal that there will be many in the church that were there for the experience or for the benefits that the church afforded to them or the identification with the Christianity afforded to them. Some were looking through salvation to a person and others were assuming upon salvation looking for an experience. And it can all look the same, but the oil in one lamp burns out. And the spirit that Christ gives to the true child of God is an oil that lives and burns within us forever and ever and keeps us ready for Him and ready to go out to meet Him in order that we might be with Him for all eternity. There's a a profound difference. That's what Christ is saying here, a profound difference. And the day will reveal it. Here's the third and last point. When Jesus returns for His people, many in the church, and this message is for those within the church, many in the church will find out the singular importance of Christ and His salvation, but it will be too late. His coming will be sudden. Though it has been delayed In the delay, they did not make use of the delay to prepare themselves to meet Him and to acquire for themselves that salvation which is a light that burns out from them. They presumed upon some religion or upon their identity in the Christian community or upon some intellectual belief or upon some prayer that they prayed years before while they went on their merry way. Just like all others, they say to themselves, I'm just like everybody else. I've got a lamp here. I've got oil in my lamp. We're living together. I'm just like them. There's no difference from me. But they never had their eyes of faith truly on Christ. They were always looking to themselves and their place in the play they were acting in. And at midnight, when he comes with a cry of introduction, the bridegroom comes, go forth to meet him. They'll discover in that moment that they've been playing a role for their own sakes. They had burned oil of a role play, which was over. The true hour of reality had come, and they had no oil of the Spirit of God burning within them to shine out upon the face of their Savior as they went out to meet Him. They will say to those that are around them, ready to go out and meet the Lord Jesus, hey, give us some of your oil, give us what you've got. But you cannot borrow your salvation from someone else. You cannot borrow a love for the Lord Jesus or a life surrendered to the Lord Jesus from someone else. You cannot take the spirit that the Lord Jesus gives to those who have truly trusted in Him and believed in Him and somehow give it to another. At last, it says they'll bang on the door saying, let us in, Lord, let us in. But the door is going to be closed and they're going to be left out. A sobering picture that the Lord Jesus is teaching in this passage. Not wheat and tares, but people. People presuming upon a celebration 
But without the Savior, without our true life with Him, and without the salvation that He gives, presuming all through their days, presuming right up to the door, banging and saying, Lord, Lord, caught up maybe in the deceit of the story they've been telling themselves so long they believed it. But He doesn't. And He knows the truth. When the Lord Jesus shares this parable, it was meant to startle those who were listening to him. It was meant to be heard by the disciples who were listening to say these things, who, by the way, shortly after this are going to deny him and flee from him. And they'll remember the story then. And they'll see their betrayal in that moment, in that hour, in that wandering, in their doubt. And in that moment, they'll say, Lord, may the day never come upon me. Give me yourself, only yourself. Turn me completely into you for your sake and for your glory and your honor. Make me love you and take me unto yourself and take me away from myself. Give me your salvation. Take my sin. Take my life. Take my effort to prove myself and to be someone. Let me be nothing and you be everything. That is, by the way, a call of true repentance and of true faith. It's what the Lord Jesus is looking for and listening to and anyone who would come to Him and trust in Him for salvation. It's what oftentimes He does not hear from people in the church itself. They may talk about the terms and they may declare about them and they may nod all their heads, etc. But the reality is in the closed door of their lives, in the moments when God is pressing upon them, they say, another day, another hour, another moment. They downplay the importance of it altogether. But in a moment of Christ's return, they'll know forever that this was the one important thing. The one important thing, but at that time, it will be too late for them. You cannot borrow salvation from someone else. You have to go to it and get it from Christ alone as you trust and believe in Him alone. You don't gain it by socializing with those who have it. You must find it all by yourself in Him alone as your eyes rest fully upon Him Believing in Him alone for your salvation, for your forgiveness, for your present day and present hour and for your future. And when you do that, when you do that, the light of salvation begins to burn in you. The gift of the Holy Spirit is given to you as lasting oil to burn forever. And you become a part of the waiting, wise group with oil burning you of the Holy Spirit. Oil that will burn through the night of your long waiting and bring you to meet him in the hour in which he returns. Lord, give me that oil. Lord, thank you for that oil, that promise, that hope. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. How we have failed to understand the full depth of our own deceiving hearts. Failed to understand how we willingly listen to the song of our own tune written to bring us comforts. How easy it is for us, dear God, to steal the song of heaven. and Whisper it to our hearts without an embrace of the person and a rest in him and his life. Dear God, reveal these things. 
It's not our duty or our call to go up and pluck the grain and differentiate between the two. You've told us that we're to test ourselves to see whether in the faith. You didn't command us to test others. We're here before you. We've heard the gospel. We know it's true. But you know, oh God, you know if it's a convention for us or whether our life is cast upon you. And whether the meager, weak clinging of our faith is to your garment and to your hymn and to trust in you. You know, oh God, it's proven. In the hour of testing and trial, where do we turn? Where do we turn? Do we turn to you? Do we cling to you? Do we hold to you? Oh God, I pray to your God the simple reality of a saving faith might be known in each one present here and that they might know that we are saved by faith, just by faith in you and all that you've done, but that we might also know it's proved in this, the just shall live by faith, from faith to faith. The faith that brings us into salvation, that powerful gift of God that's given to us which is not of works, it's your gift of grace, that faith endures by your grace, ever clinging, ever looking to a person. May that be found true of all here and all who hear this message we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.